Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Brian Kamenetsky in today. My guest today has one of the most interesting and varied careers of anybody you'll find in Hollywood, having directed everything from big budget films in the James Bond franchise to uh, the critically acclaimed Up, uh, excuse me, Up documentary series, uh, along with features like Coal Miner's Daughter, Gorillas in the Mist, and Thunderheart. His newest feature, Unlocked, tells the story of a CIA agent played by uh, Numi Rapace trying to stop a potentially catastrophic incident of biological terrorism, and it really would have been bad. Uh, it co-stars Orlando Bloom, John Malkovich, Tony Collette, and Michael Douglas, and it opens September 1st. Michael Apted, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, well, I promise we'll get to the movie, especially since you know people are watching us. You, on the way up, when we were, we were just sort of casually talking, you mentioned you showed up in L.A. right when... Magic Johnson did, too. So yeah. I remember reading about both of those things. Yeah. No, I, I came here in 1979 to do Coal Miner's Daughter. I mean, I did it in Kentucky and uh, whatever, but I was, you know, it was it was based out of Los Angeles. And I came and I did the film and I stayed and I'm still here. So I've been here nearly 40 years. But I never forget the excitement of being here with the Lakers with Kareem and and Magic and that wonderful moment at the end when Magic jumped into Kareem's yeah. arms. I don't, I don't know who it was against, but I remember it. And I had to yeah, at the Forum or at Staples? No, at, uh, at the Forum. Yeah, I was at the Forum. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a big sports fan, and I had to leave all that behind me in England apart from my soccer team. So I had to choose, you know, because I had no roots here at all, so I had to choose my team. So I had to choose an NFL team a basketball team and a baseball team. And so I went. <clears throat> the football one was easy because my f- soccer team has been very unsuccessful. And I had, I was first taken to watch them when I was nine. So I've supported them for 70 years. So I decided to pick the best NFL team, which happened to be the Dallas Cowboys. And so, That's pretty, I mean, it's pretty, kind of almost pretty, cliche. I no, no, and I remember, no disrespect I remember intended. I remember I was in, we were in, Tennessee shooting coal miner's daughter and I saw a Monday night game and we beat um, Baltimore like 39 to 3 or something. I thought, this is the life. And then... For the like You've been here, by the way, like a, like a 10, week and you're, already, and you're already calling them we. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, <laughs> a true fan. For the next 15 years it was a nightmare. Up and down the Cowboys, up and down. And it's almost never been, apart from that period with Aikman and you know the coach, it's been a nightmare. And I chose the Angels because it's easier to get in and out of the Angels than it is the Dodgers. And, of course, the Lakers, who was, they were a big draw. They were really the essence of the city. So, You never toyed with the Clippers at all? No, I mean, they they were in San Diego. (laughs) That's true. It goes back that far. But that's, that's an interesting thing, like, it... We all yeah, you talked about your football team, yeah. which was which which you West know, Ham United. Okay, you go back seventy years. You don't you don't choose those teams. Those things are sort of exactly. built yeah, around. My father you. took me when I was nine years right. old, right? And that's and that that's how it, it happens it's all over. Then it's almost like a it's like a scientific process. Almost yeah. when you show up in a country and you can just decide which teams that you want to cheer for. Yeah, because I had to have it. I mean, I had to have the adrenaline of. How were they doing? What's the score? Where are they? And all this kind of stuff. You know, it's hard to do with eight hours time difference. So I had to have teams here. Like, and I, you know, I, I've been loyal to the three of them. Not that Dallas is here, but sure, whatever. How how 
in deep into the sort of the forum culture were you? Because that was, you know, forum well, in the 80s was crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, the whole thing was unbelievable. I remember all those great championship games with Boston and all this kind of stuff. It was spectacular. And the Lakers were in the middle of it all. And were you, you know, were you like hanging out in the forum club and all that kind of stuff? No, certainly not. I, mean, <laughs> I had some friends and, uh, you know, we had some tickets and we used to go. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, it's a shame. You know, Michael Thompson uh, yeah. from those teams hosts the morning show here. Yeah. Yeah. So right. you missed him by like a, a, yeah, an his, hour. His young man has done pretty well for himself. Hasn't right? he? <laughs> it's all like his, we always joke about this with Michael, his least successful son athletically he plays professionally in Europe. Really? Like and he's been in the in the D League and he's had you know played uh, in the NBA. I think he's been on a couple of ten uh, day contracts. But his other son is with you know with yeah. the Dodgers and third one is Clay. How That's many pretty good genes? How many sons has he got? Three. That's it. The least successful of which well, played yeah. is a professional athlete. I think he could retire, couldn't he? Michael? Yeah, he kind of has. <laughs> <laughs> Ask the people who work around here; they'll yeah. tell you. Michael kind of has retired. Um, well, I will probably circle back to some of this, uh, but I do want to ask you a little bit about the movie and, and your career. Obviously, uh, what are the what are the challenges of making a movie about terrorism? Um, everything from creating three dimensional characters to understanding today's political climate to kind of the balance between terrorism, which is a serious thing, but also you're trying to make an engaging, fun, yeah. you know, film at the same time. I'm not sure. Fun is quite the word, but a good evening. Enjoyable. Out, enjoyable. enjoyable thing. Well, I mean, I think you have to be careful. I mean, I, I think it has to have a sense of reality to it. I mean, it just can't be a fantasy. I think it's too... I mean, Marvel Films does set fantasies mm. and all this. If you're doing this, I think you've got to be kind of honest about it. So, I mean, we were... It was, we were our story, which was obviously made up, it had one of its central action sequences was in Paris. We didn't shoot it in Paris, but, you know, we shot it and whatever, and then the real thing happened in Paris, and that when they shot out the, the, the nightclub, right. and nearly 100 people got killed. So suddenly, by chance, we got involved in the, in the real world, as it were. But I just think you've got to be open about it, and you've got to have a good story, because, I mean, the reason I chose the story was not necessarily because of what it was about, but because it was a very well-written thriller with lots of twists and turns in it. You know, it could have been about anything, but this happened to be about the dangers of kind of nuclear war in society and the underground and things like this. So, I mean, I just think the story's got to be good. I'm not doing it just because I want to do a nuclear thing. It mm -hmm. just happened to be about that. And, you know, it gives... I mean, I don't want to frighten people and whatever. I mean... Everybody sort of knows the dangers we live in here, and it's maybe not a bad idea to keep people alert to him. But basically, I wanted to make an entertainment. The sort of entertainment I like with thrillers is when I really don't quite know what's going to happen or where I am, and then things are, you know, resolved for me. And it seems like, you know, the, the, there's, there's a, an acknowledgement of, you know, the, the, you know, there of of Islamic terror in the you know, yeah. thing, but also a recognition that you know not every uh, right. you know Muslim is a terror. You, you it, it seemed like you know, at least built into the script an effort to try to round out the 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 way that these things work. Yeah, and to avoid cliche in a way. I mean, you know, the the, the Muslims who appear in the film are very serious-minded people. 
they're not maniacs at all. I mean, they're serious people who are trying to protect their ground, and I don't mean with guns or whatever, but intellectually, mm -hmm. set in London, you know, that they're trying to preserve and explain who they are and why they do what they do. Um, there's an incredible variety of people that you're working with here. I mean, the cast has, yeah. you know, any number of, of people in it. You know, I mentioned uh, Nimi Rapace. She's a Swedish Swedish actress most people probably recognize from playing Elizabeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and yeah. the subsequent movies. Um, there's Michael Douglas. There's Tony Collette. There's John Malkovich, Orlando Bloom. When you're handling and directing talent that, at least from the outside looking in, has such a variety of styles and, and approaches and, and sort of the history that we attach to them. How do you approach that as a director? Well, I, I think it's a process. I mean, you know, when I met Michael Douglas, I was almost fainting because, I mean, you know, he's been around so long and he's done so much and he's sort of heroic. And then the same with Orlando in a different way, that he's, you know, kind of kind of a wild guy and all this. But, I mean, it's it's what I have to do is build a relationship with them. I mean, with Numi, for example, it was almost immediate. You know, we got on well. I mean, she has such a huge role to do. She's in probably 80% of the scenes, yeah, at exactly. least. Yeah. So then there was that. And then was on the reverse, there was Tony Collette, who probably only shot for five or six days. But, you know, when you're dealing with Michael and, and Malkovich, too, I mean, you know, Malkovich is incredibly experienced. And I just think... You know, one just has to be respectful with them of what they've done, and then in return, they're respectful to you, and then hopefully you can have a, a, a proper relationship. I mean, I don't think you can go around thinking, oh, sweating all the time, thinking, I'd, what should I say? What can I say? I mean, dare I say something critical? Oh, for God's sake, what right. happened? And then in the end of the day, you do say something critical because you don't want not to have said it and then regret it forever. When you see the film and you see a scene and I should have said something about the scene and I didn't, and there it is forever, not right, as it were. So right. That's the final test that I've got to do the best job I can without alienating people and, and being – and I try and kind of socialize with them too. I mean, I don't mean go drinking with them, but my, Michael, like you and me, loved sport. So, I mean, sport is a great way into a relationship with a man and with some women too. And I use that as well, not because I'm being cynical, because I love it and, you know, we can share opinions and whatever. So you, had you not – you'd never met Michael Douglas to, that, to no. this point? Is that – because, I mean, you've both been at this I for know. a long time. Yeah, so we're about I mean, the same age as well. It, is yeah. it strange, like, to be – my guess is, oh, of course, you know, well, I mean, you would have crossed paths at some point. Yeah, probably, but we never really met. I mean, I, I tended to do most of my films out of, not out of America, but mm -hmm. out of California. You know, I've, I've done lots of films in, in remote parts of, of the country and also in Europe and whatever. So it's not that I've been living in or part of the, the Hollywood crowd, you know, for the last 40 years. I mean, look, I, I mean, you were, at, you were in the forum at Laker Games. Right? That's, that <laughs> doesn't true. get more Hollywood That's crowd true. than that. But I didn't know that at the time. I was an innocent abroad. Okay, that makes sense. Whatever. But, um, no, it, it's, it's always difficult how far you can go with people. and how. But in the end, you've got to trust your instincts that if I said something slightly negative, he would take it in a right. good spirit. I, you know, and you, you mentioned only having Tony Collette for, you know, a few days. And yeah. I read the same thing about... Um, Mike, or was it Michael Douglas you had for yeah, a I short period? Of, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by process and how things happen and they come together. When you, when you, you know, you you mentioned that the films 
not shot in London, but it needs to look like London. Yeah, if it yeah. was Prague, and yeah. all of these different things that that come together, you know, how do the logistical challenges of well, having an actor there for a couple minutes, like how does that all f- figure into the way you do your work? Well, it's very difficult because I mean, what was bizarre about this film? I don't think some of the actors never met each other. I mean, I don't think I ever had more than two of them together at the same time. Right. I don't think um, Michael ever met Orlando. I don't think, you know, because they were both, mm-hmm. they were booked for two weeks, two weeks here. And it was, it's very difficult for me, you know, to do that because you can't, you know, you, you don't get any sense of the community of it, but you've also just got to, you know, the, the, the skill of doing the job of working with actors is somehow, you know, to make it coherent for them because I remember when when Orlando came in and when Tony came in, they did their whole part, you know, and I mean their part ran through the whole film, not much of it, but they did. So sure. Somehow I have to have in my head the development that I see in the characters and in the relationships, but it was really bizarre that I never met them all together. And because as a, as a director, are, are you trying to anticipate what you know you see orlando shoot his stuff and then when tony comes in obviously i'm making up the order but like do you have to do you try to remember what orlando did and see if you can mold the next person into the previous performance the one person who was there every minute was was new me of course and you know it was difficult i mean for example i think she had to do tony's scenes first and then he went and then and then Orlando came in, and she spent two weeks with Orlando, and then he left, and then Michael came in. And I mean, it's kind of sometimes you think it's a kind of miracle the film has any continuity at all. But I mean, it's so much part of the business these days that you know these films cost a lot of money, and pe- the people we're talking about get paid a lot of money, and you just can't have people sitting around for weeks right. doing nothing. So I, I suppose it goes with the territory, but it can be hair raising. I can tell you. I'm sure. Like actually, I, I will note there's a. A moment. There's a, a great scene where Tony Collette handles a machine gun, yes. which I've decided needs to be its own genre, right? Because she looks like she she's enjoying she, that. Like she claims she'd never done it before either. And when she did it, I don't know when she would have. Like, which well, Tony I mean, Collette movie would she, well, no, would she I mean, be gunning people life, down? I mean, she lives. She lives here now, but she lives in Australia a lot, and I'm sure you need guns in Australia. Yeah, but, but anyway, <laughs> no. But um, she claimed never to have even handled a gun, but she was frighteningly good at it. Well, I think you know, if, especially when you know it's not real, I could, yeah. I could understand why it would be fun. Um, You've worked with an enormous amount of talent over the course of your career. You, you know, two Oscar-nominated performances and uh, Sissy Spacek won for Coal Miner's yeah. Daughter and Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Gorillas in the Mist. You work with Tommy Lee Jones and Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Cumberbatch and Kate Winslet and Gene Hackman and so on and so on and so on. How does your experience working with actors over the course of your career inform the way you direct you know, stars and, and actors that you work with now? I suppose it must. I mean, it's just a part of a, a learning process. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't suppose I even realize I'm learning. But like working with Sissy is one thing, and I pick up lessons from that. And I don't think it's something that I think about out loud or even logical about. But the more experience you get you know, with actors, the easier it is to deal with difficulties with actors. I mean, one of, when I was 28, I did this very big, difficult television show with Laurence Olivier. You know, um, 
And that was very, very difficult. And, you know, I mean, I just had to... Difficult because it was Laurence Olivier? Well, yes, because, he was, you know, he was the most famous actor on, on mm-hmm. the planet. And there was little me and him, you know, and and whatever. And, and, and it is intimidating, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's intimidating meeting Michael Douglas. But, I mean, you have to get over it, but you you have to know. You want them to know that you are a bit overawed by them because otherwise do they just think I'm rubbish so this is them looking at me um, just it's, it's good to show a reasonable amount of respect with them and you know the fact that they've done great work and I've you know they've changed my life in ways with work they've done and all that and not to be kind of up their backsides with it but at least to just acknowledge the fact that these are my heroes you know? right but you still have to direct them. I mean, you do you remember? Do, what, them, do you yeah. remember? You know that you talked about criticism the first time you had to criticize, you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Yeah, I mean, for, and we did. I mean, we, we had a little bit, not of a set too, but there were discussions about how to play the role. You know, but I, I felt, like I said before, if I didn't say something, and I'd let him go on a path, and I had been right and he'd be wrong, I'd never forgive myself for it. Why didn't I say that to him then? You know, I mean, and often I've done that and not said something because I've been too shy or worried about the impact. And then I thought afterwards, what a stupid thing to do. You know, it's like being open with your wife or something like that. You may as well tell what right. you're feeling or things. If you don't do it and it goes bad on you, then you just never forgive yourself. And I would imagine, too, there's a certain amount of latitude you want to give. Like, there are a couple small moments in Unlocked where John Malkovich does things like makes choices that are very yeah. John Malkovich little tiny things yeah. where and that's what you want yeah. I mean that's what you're paying for in a way so you and also I mean if if they have ideas you know let them use them and if if they're not in sync with what is going on around the film just say that to them but you know you just look at I mean he has he'd have a simple scene like we're doing now and Malkovich would do something which would be sort of brilliant but you know it was never in the script yeah. or whatever he does yeah. my gesture. favorite is my favorite is when he's asking the people around the room you yeah. know if they have any others and he sort of lolls his that's head right. back and I mean, it's like what, that is so john Malkovich. that's why it's so great and yeah, that's it's what brilliant. you're buying. that's what you're paying for so you don't want to kind of you know shut them down and mm-hmm. say this isn't in the script don't do that um i mentioned the up series and when i was introducing you and for people who don't know you've spent almost 50 years now yeah. following uh, a group of what were once British school children through their lives, making a new installment every seven years. Um, you've done a lot of documentary work. Uh, in addition to that, do you have a preference between feature directing and, and documentary? Well, I think at heart, and I was sort of going to mention this with the acting thing. I think at heart, I'm a documentarian. I think whenever I approach a movie of any sort, I try and find out what the realities are around the script and whatever and what's really going on, even with, when I did the James Bond film, which was about getting uh, oil out of the Caspian Sea. I made them go the down. The world is not enough. The world right, is yeah. not enough to go down and have a look at it, and we did, and it was kind of spectacular. And we were able to use some ideas from the reality of it. So I always, if I can, sometimes it's too hard, but to find what the real truth of the matter, you know, what the locations were like for coal miner's daughter and all that sort of stuff. So I always try and get as much real information as I can because that's me as a documentarian. And, you know, I just think that's my calling card in a way. So every film I attack 
you know, it starts out in my mind as a documentary. What's the reality here? What's truthful here? What has been made up to, you know, tell a good story? But as long as I can get the... I remember I did this film, Gorky Park, which sure. I said in Russia, and they wouldn't let us in. They wouldn't let us in to scout it. And um, because it was in the days uh, before Gorbachev, uh, Brezhnev and things like this, and they just wouldn't let us in because they regarded the book, Gorky Park, as an insult. To, they said to us, they, they don't have, we don't have crime in this, in this country. But, but I was sort of bereft because I had no idea, like, what do they have for breakfast and what do they do? I mean, little details which I love to pick up from the reality. I just felt kind of at sea a bit because I had no idea how a, a Russian led their daily life. You know, this was about Russians leading their daily life. So... I'm sort of a bit of a junkie for, you know, finding the documentary mm -hmm. facts behind whatever movie I'm doing. And so does that translate into how your features look? I mean, like if somebody's seeing, what are the ways you would you say, like if somebody goes to see Unlocked, um, right. again, September 1st, yeah. um, <laughs> would recognize that kind of well, sensibility? Not. I mean, but uh, all I would say is there are details in it, mm -hmm. you know, which are accurate. And maybe unusual, maybe not unusual to an audience because they are accepting it. But we managed to get some touches in it, or some aspect of the way the set was designed, or whatever, you know, which was is real and, and truthful. And I think it's all kind of putting all the truths together to make the whole thing, even if it's really something like you know Narnia, something which is purely fantastical. It just gives the thing credibility, and I think it helps working with the actors when you say to all, this is what it's like, and this is what the CIA looks like, and this is what you do, and all that sort of stuff. It makes it, just gives it more of a solid grounding. Um, I, 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 wasn't, that's fine. I wasn't sure if that was more. I didn't want to cut you off. Um, I read, in, it may have even been an old uh, New York Times interview, you talked about uh, insisting on final cut for documentaries, yeah. um, which is something that is very difficult to come by for, oh, yeah. for a feature. I, to use myself as an example, I've written stories where I get very angry at the little things that I would have liked to have fixed. Yeah. I get extra angry when I write a story and it publishes and there's something I'd like to fix when the editor has made some kind of change right. in something right. that I wouldn't have done. But I get triply angry when I realize, well, I essentially could have fixed that myself and right. I didn't. So is it easier to let go of a of the feature because you have less control of it? Do you you understand what kind of what I'm getting yeah, at? I mean, it's a nightmare, I have to tell you. I, I find it terrible in television because you know I do quite I came sure. out of television in Great Britain and I do quite a lot of television here and the whole post production of television for the director is a nightmare you know I mean I've done a number of series here and you find you get very good scripts you get excellent actors you get a decent time to do it and then you have like 3 days to edit the thing and then you hand it over and you never see it again and I won't even watch my shows go out because I'm terrified is what oh, wow. people have done to it. I've seen but, more of Masters of Sex than you have, then. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds a bit simpering, but it's so depressing because so much of that process of doing those those particular sorts of films, Ray Donovan, is so good. Mm -hmm. And yet the last part, which is the editing, when I don't expect to get final cut in a movie, if, a, if the studio wants to do this and do that, and... You know, I have to go with it. But when you're doing a television thing and so much care goes into the writing and the casting and the acting, and then the editing is just kind of taken out of your grip. And 
I hate that. I hate it. So, but I mean, you know, there are certain... It's You're a bit on your back foot as a director in television. You know, it's because you have so little control over the post-production. You know, it's a big give, a big or takeaway. With movies, you know, it's... It's more negotiation, and it's more what relationship you have with the studio. But you can never—I could never get final cut from a studio for a film. I do. Other people would. People a third of my age would who have mm-hmm. been very successful. But that frustration that you feel, I—I I feel all the time. And just is, do you go back and look at older oh, stuff? I mean, yeah, I do. I go back, and but then I, I see the mistakes that I made. So you know, I. I they weren't the only people that I thought were misguided. I was mm-hmm. misguided in certain places, and you've got to let it go after a time. But, you know, with the, with television, it's so immediate. You know, it's not that like you do a movie. I mean, I finished this movie a year ago, and now the movie's coming out. Mm-hmm. Time has calmed me down with that. But on the television thing, you know, three weeks from the day you finish delivering <laughs> right. your cut, it's on the air, and like that. You're still, you're things, it's still internal. You know, yeah. think, what have they done? Why did, why did they do that? Why didn't they ask me? Why didn't they talk to me about it? Um, I, the Up series is is interesting in, in part because your voice is there. I mean, yeah. you, you are a person asking these people questions, and you're doing it over the course of, of decades. What does that, that making those movies taught you about the process of interviewing? Well, a lot. I mean, you know, it, it started out as an accident. Mm-hmm. I it was supposed to be. It was a film about seven-year-old children talking about how horrible social, you know, the, the social life in England was. That people who had money got all the all the best options, all the choices, and people who had no money had no idea what they were going to do, no future. That there was a class system based on more into what society you were born. And it was incredibly unfair and whatever. And it's changed a lot in England since then. But when we did this in 63, it was very vivid the way how some people, some kids had no chance at all because of the poverty of education for them and others had a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we we made the film and it was a one-off film, but it was was created a huge stir. Because it was such a good idea. I mean, you, you can get people in. You can get have radio shows about social unfairness. You can get teachers in. You can get politicians in. But to have seven-year-old children telling them that they don't know what they're going to do and what's university and all this kind of stuff, it was. It really did stir the nation up. And then I went back. I just researched the first one. I helped find the children. But then it was then decided, why don't we go back in seven years' time and see what had happened, you know, and we did, and we thought, Jesus, we're onto something here. So then I've really committed the whole of my working life to doing it, and I've been doing it, as you say, for over 50 years, and next year but one, I'll do 63 up. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, when you when do you start, because... Well, we're sort of talking about it now. I don't like to get too much into it, because it's always difficult to make sure that they want to go show up every seven years, but... We just knew we were onto something, and, and what was so interesting about it was that because it, the first one wasn't this was this isn't going to be the beginning of a long series. This was going to be a one-off. We didn't take that much trouble in care in choosing the children, so we just actually did choose ordinary children. We didn't want ones who were just brilliant or not or stupid or whatever. 
And so we, you know, if we were doing that now, we'd do all that. We'd do video tests on people and all this kind of stuff. You know, tick boxes to make sure you're not this kind of, of kid. And, yeah. But then you would, in a sense, it would be self-defeating. You would be kind of proving what you're supposed to be trying to find out. And so the, the people that we chose were just regular people, you know, who didn't have any ambitions to be in television or stuff like that. And I think it gave the whole series a reality. But, it, I mean, it's the most important thing I've ever done. You know, it's my legacy, if you want. And it's if, if people haven't seen them, they're, they're very readily available. I mean, I yeah. went back and reviewed. I mean, you can find them on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and they are completely worth watching. Uh, it's It really is... It, it drives home for me the difference between documentary yeah. and reality TV, yeah. and well, how different those things well, are. That was a big fight I had. You know, when I was when I was getting up to say forty two up, you know, reality television was coming in big, and so they were saying to me, "Look, all these people are doing these reality; they're getting a fortune, and we're doing this, and we don't get anything for it." Well, they get a little bit, but I said, "Well, there, there is a difference," you know. Reality television is kind of set up. What we're doing, a documentary, is, you know, trying to find the real moments that you're living in your life. We're not setting things up. And that kind of persuaded them, but it was a very tricky time for me to try and get a distinction between a documentary and a reality mm -hmm. show, because a reality show is pure entertainment. A documentary can be as grim as hell, you know, but it, nonetheless it's still a valuable piece. So that was a big argument I had with the people in the film who were kind of getting a bit fed up. They weren't making tons of money. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, it's it's not a money making no, no uh, endeavor. No. It's just a valuable one. But it is interesting, you know, just to watch. And I learned going back to your question. You know, I I learned a lot about interviewing, which is, you know, don't say too much. I mean, just let them talk and don't try and lead them too much because. Each time I do one of these every seven years, you know, I want to find out how they've changed and what's different and how what's developed and all this sort of stuff. And they have to tell me. I can't ask questions because I wouldn't know how to ask it. I mean, I it has to. I do interviews for a long time with them. I mean, not for days. I mean, like you know, I'd interview them for six hours or something like that. But you know, I, I found the more you let them speak and the more you shut up and the the the, the sh shorter the questions are, the better it is. So you don't either put words in their mouth or bore them to death asking mm -hmm. a long question. So because you, it's best to know not to know or to second guess what they're going to say, because that's what keeps the series alive. Because suddenly they're saying different things, they're saying new things. They're not just leading off from what happened in the last episode. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you did you enjoy um, Boyhood? I mean, because it's okay, it's kind yeah. of the yeah, it's yeah, it's the closest yeah. thing to the the movie version of what you've done. Well, Linklater, who did mm -hmm. it, was very nervous about it, so he had had me in to look at it. Oh, really? Yeah, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "It's very good." You see, you don't think it's you know, it's I'm stoned. I said, "Of course not." She said, "What advice do you have for me?" I said, "Keep going," which he hasn't. But keep doing it. Like Boyhood 2? Just Boyhood 2, 3, 4, 5. They're there. They're real people. They're alive. It's, you know, they were, they, you know, they were actors, but nonetheless they were, you know, they were drawn out of reality. They weren't all written down and whatever. It was very improvised. Do you think it would, how do you think making another one of those where it's 
people kind of occupying a character and going back to that would be different or the what were the challenges of doing that again in a fictionalized world versus well, I mean it would, documentary? It would be just I mean it would be a, a question of how well written it could be how well but it's just an acknowledgement that life changes and the fact that if he did another one I mean because the comparing because he, he used two generations of the film didn't he I mean and the, just the look of people is so interesting how they looked so different and, and whatever but to go on with it I mean, I, I, mean I, I was kind of joking in a way, but I just think longitudinal work is very interesting. And, um, you know, when you can keep things together and, keep, and go back to things, it's so much, it's the sort of thing that books would do. But, you know, people now don't read books or don't have time to read books, mm-hmm. or this is just a subject of, you know, of intellectual work, of, of research work, but... To show an audience the way people change and people grow up is, I mean, it's the stuff of life, isn't it? Sure. And in, to ask a stupid question, he approached you be, with the well, he, understanding of the work that you'd done with, oh, yes. with Up. Yeah, and he was well aware of the Up films. And I think mm-hmm. he was nervous. He thought I might take an aggressive attitude. And I think the New York Times did. They tried to kind of create some ill feeling, you know, but I mean, that didn't work. But. Um, no, I think he was just—he just wanted me to to approve it, and if I didn't improve it, to approve it, to discuss it with him and whatever. I mean, I just think he wanted to make sure the road was clear. So, do you find among your peers that that—that's the work that they recognize you for more than anything? I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, there's one or two movies that sort of will live a long time, but I think you know because it was to- totally original. We invented a whole new form of documentary the longitudinal one mm-hmm. you know which never existed before yeah we were the first people to do it and we did it by accident yeah, and it, it is it is genuinely fascinating well, it's stuff used to in watch. schools yeah. and universities all over the world yeah. and we there are other countries do them as well you mentioned television um i you've done nine episodes of masters of sex on hbo and yeah. you did uh you mentioned ray donovan i think you did rome uh, yeah, as well yeah, yeah. how has the the explosion of high-end t- tv particularly like hour-long yeah. uh, impacted the world that that you work in well i mean uh, i think it's very very interesting stuff i mean it's some of the best stuff we can see now i think is is those you know long-term you know, the ten-parter or endless part, you know, Game of Thrones, I think it's some of the best work that's coming out of the industry, film, television, whatever. I mean, my only worry about it is it financially sustainable because they're spending so much money on it and so much of it, I can't keep up Dragons with it. aren't free. And you just wonder yeah. how long this can go on. Is it going to implode or whatever? You know, I mean, because, you know, things change. The movie industry changed. I wanted to come to America because I loved American movies. Um, and I came and I did Coal Miner's Daughter, and I did it in 1979, which was the kind of the end of the great 70s. I mean, if you look at the list of Best Picture nominations in the 70s, it's unbelievable how many great movies are there. And then, you know, things changed in the 80s with the, you know, really with the big block, block, blockbusters and whatever. And it kept changing, then it went independent and all that. The, the, the film industry keeps changing all the time. It has its golden period, then it has its big period, it's a big expense. And what, you know, now I think that the, the, the real challenges at the moment, the real new things over the last couple of years have been the development of these television things, mm-hmm. these, the ability to tell a novel, you know, to tell a long story. And, and, and they're very well 
very well financed, so you can do a really good job on them. I th- and I think that stuff is really excellent. And I'm sure it's impacting on, you know, what the sort of films that are made, because in some ways you'd rather do a great HBO or whatever ten-parter than do a small movie, you know what I mean? So I think it's... But it is how much they cost, and I just wonder how long the people can keep going with it. Does it make it hard? I don't have the. I don't know what your budget was for Unlocked, but like, does does it? Is there room now for? Is it harder to make that kind of mid budget? Yeah, yeah, sure, it is. I mean, I think you know, you either want films to cost little, so you can recoup quickly, or else you want them to be as big as possible. <laughs> you know, a la Marvel or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're great cost as much as you possibly can afford so they have every possible ingredient and they're so much better than the ones before you know you just got to keep improving them and then you implode i mean <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, not a very happy ending uh, you mentioned game of thrones so what what else do you consider to be like whether it's particularly television like the the good work well, that's out there i'm sure i I mean, I I love the, the, what was it, the morning after, I loved that, and Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones is is very good, and I like some of the long-running serials like Donovan and and things, I think they're very good, and um, Big Lies or Little Lies, whatever that was, I mean, I just think they're so interesting to, again, get things to develop, you're not in a hurry, you don't have to ram a film into 90 minutes or 100 minutes, and you know, they're more, and they they tend to attract good acting and good writing, and so it's, it's some of the very best stuff. Because, you know, the middle part of movies have kind of fallen out. Now you either spend $150 million on a movie or you spend $10 million on a movie. You know, the middle ground is hard to recoup. You, it's hard to get your money back. Uh, I just have a couple more things for you. I mean, with with writing, and I know you've, you've made it explicitly clear that's not something that you do. No. Um, People talk a lot about writing what you know and, and experience, personal experience, and, and things that happen in your life influencing what you do yeah. as a writer. How does that same principle work as a director? I mean, because you've lived a life, you have a family, you've yeah. had you know, I, I suppose, tragic things yeah. happen in your family. A lot I mean, of, you, you, you just, I suppose, to a lesser extent, it's the same thing that you come across a situation that you've lived through mm-hmm. in some form or another. So you've got some kind of sense of you've got you've got an anchor to what you're saying that i've been through this or i've lived this or i've i've known this sort of stuff but but again it's again uh you know doing documentary work i mean the whole job of documentaries is to observe people's behavior and to preserve and observe people's mannerisms and whatever and try and exploit them in 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 a sense so you know i'm used to looking at the real world and uh, and a real, you know, ordinary people who are not prepared in in, in any kind of, to act or engage or whatever. I just, you know, because I mean, I've done some, you know, I did one subject as a documentary and as a feature film, a, a Native American, one, mm-hmm. and that was very interesting. That was incident at Oglala and Thunderheart. Yeah. And you know, it showed me the strengths of both and the weaknesses of both. You know, doing a documentary, sometimes it's hard to have the finesse of a story. How do you tell a story with the elegance that you can do a fictional story with a beginning, middle, and end? You can't really get that elegance in it, and you have loose ends all over the place. But uh, when you're doing a documentary, you can get from real people 
an authenticity which it's very hard for actors to find. And so when I did Thunderheart, I used some people from the documentary in it, you know, to, in fact, try and mix up people off the street or off off the, you know, off, you know, off the street with people who are actors. And it's, right. it's great for the actors as well because they can't overact. They see, you know, if you're the real guy on the on the microphone here and I'm playing you and I'm watching you and I'm in a scene with you, I can't suddenly be- behave like a lunatic. Because right, I think <laughs> you're right are, there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, that whole thing is, to, to me, it's just something that I'll never solve, but it's just something that's always so interesting is how you pitch a performance, you know, how, so that it isn't showy or it isn't offensive or whatever, that it, and it isn't out of tune with what else is going on. It's it's hard, and often, you know, I'm often saying to actors, don't do so much, just just say it, don't act it. And, but if you've got a real person with them who's in the scene, and they know, they can see that this person does it without having to enact it and whatever. Yeah, it's amazing, but you've, you've, been, able, you've been able to come at these, these films with that kind of background, with the documentary experience, with the experience of doing both the documentary and the feature and that that's yeah. a kind of a weird yeah. experiment that doesn't get done yeah, I know. so yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad i kept them both going you know that's pretty cool yeah i mean i less so now because documentaries uh, uh take longer a hard work and i'm you know not a, and, not and, a young chap anymore so and it's it's a big job taking on a documentary but i'm glad that i've done so many of them you know uh, are we going to see it at Staples Center this year? Are you, are you looking well, forward hoping to so. Hoping the boys put on a show, so I'll have to come. It's been yeah. ugly the last couple of seasons. I know, I know. You haven't had a reason to show up. I know. Um, and I, I just looked it up. I'm willing to, it looks early in the season here, and early enough in the season, I'm willing to adopt West Ham, although they don't look very good. Well, they're not very good, no. But Do they have a nickname? Are we well, they're called the Irons or the Hammers, depending what generation you are. The Hammer seems a little on the nose. Yes, it is. The Irons, they used to, they started life as a football team from an iron foundry in 1890 okay. or something like that. What so, are our colors? Claret. I'm saying iron now, like you did with the Cowboys. I am. Yes, they're claret and blue. And they've got one or two very, very good players, and they have all through, but we've never really got it all together. And we are currently, in case you're thinking of embracing the bottom of the premiership. Uh oh. So you can get relegated. That soon. No, not yet. They've only played two games. But it's not a healthy <laughs> Are we, I don't want to get. I don't, I don't want to pick up a team that's going to get relegated. Well, so I just am I going to be safe with a Tottenham fan? Well, that's that's quite a good thing. If you if you want to pick a London side, or I mean, most people pick Manchester United. Yeah, it's, they're the most. That's too easy. But they are they are going to be good this season. They are actually going to be good. I kind of like the charm of a of a struggling team a little bit more. I just don't want to be relegated. Well, I like colors and an interesting story. Claret, then you become a West Ham supporter and All you right. keep in touch, and then you'll write to me and say I've had enough of this. <laughs> Every Saturday is miserable. Sold. <laughs> um, all right. Well, the the film is unlocked. It opens on September first. Uh, stars Numi Rapace, Orlando Bloom, John Malkovich, Tony Collette, and Michael Douglas. It, it is. It's an enjoyable film. And Michael Apted, thank you so much for coming in and and being so generous with your time. I really Pleasure. appreciate it. Pleasure to talk to you.